thank you guys so much for joining us. Welcome to the third episode ever of our new pop-up talk show, Means of Creation. In this show, we are going to be interviewing founders, operators, and creators who are building companies that reflect their vision and their values and help people to do what they love for a living. I'm your host, Lee Jin, joined by Nathan Bachez. And we started this show because we wanted to encourage innovation and the passion economy and to help aid the world in becoming a place where people can unite their passions with their professions. And hopefully by shining a light on the innovators and thinkers in this space, we can inspire more people who are forging their own paths. So our guest today is Lenny Rachitsky, a writer, creator, angel investor, whose most recent real job was spending seven years at Airbnb. He left about a year ago and prior to that was leading supply side growth for about two years and previously worked on guest conversion, host quality, and community. Before that, he was the founder of a startup called Local Mind, which was a real-time location-based Q&A platform that helped users decide what to do, where to go, and what was happening around them. He now writes a really popular Substack newsletter that's in the top 20 of all paid newsletters, creatively titled Lenny's Newsletter, which you can find at lennysnewsletter.com. Creatively and titled. Nice subtle very, dig there. <laughs> very, it's, that's how I describe it. Very I mean, mine is called Lee's Newsletter, so I, I admire that structure of the title. It's hard and, to disaggregate you from your, you know, your newsletter at that point. Yeah. That was People, exactly how we thought about it when I was signing up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he covers product, growth, people management, and other business and tech topics. A quick plug that this show is brought to you by the Everything Bundle, which you can find at everything.substack.com. And I'm at lead.substack.com if you want to read more of my very sporadic thoughts I publish less frequently. But when I do, it's very long. And very Anyways, good. <laughs> thank you. High quality. A quick note before we dive in that the structure is going to be for the first 30 minutes, Nate and I will have a discussion with Lenny. And then for the rest of the time, we'll switch over to audience questions. And so if anything pops to mind that you want to ask Lenny or the two of us, just pop it into the Q&A and we'll go through those questions afterwards. So without further ado, let's dive in. First question for Lenny is, I think of you as an example of the passion economy in action. You started your newsletter about a year ago and you've quickly risen up the charts on Substack to become one of the most popular writers. Can you tell us a little bit about the why and the color behind why you decided to start writing and what your goals are? Yeah, thank you for having me, by the way. This is a... Oh, thanks for joining us. Yes, oh, yeah. I forgot that bit. So I guess to answer your question, if you were to ask uh, two year ago Lenny, or even one year ago Lenny, hey, do you imagine your life being writing a newsletter to earn your income? That would not even be on the, like, the list of things I imagined I'd be doing. I've never really written much in my life before, and I never really had a plan to go down this route, but it, I, the way I think about it is, I, like the Substack founders probably had this strategy when they were designing Substack. Okay, we're gonna get people to find out about Substack, and then they're gonna like, okay, maybe they'll start a Substack, and then maybe they'll like start a newsletter that's regular, and then, okay, maybe they'll charge in the future, and that's exactly what I went through, is this little path that kind of like pulled me along and just kind of kept giving me confidence that I could do this thing and that it was working and that people valued it. And then eventually like, oh, wow, I guess I could make a living doing this thing. So there was no intention from the beginning. It was just kind of this like plodding along and 
Nathan and I, and I actually had a chat when I was in the free period uh, to get his advice on moving to paid because because you, you want paid for the beginning. And that was really helpful actually to help me understand that this is actually a thing that could happen. But I guess as a goal, like very practically, my goal right now is to try to avoid getting a regular job again and make this basically my income. And it's working out so far. Yeah, yeah. top 20. Had you been writing before that and blogging regularly throughout your career or like, was it already a hobby and, and sort of passion that you had for writing and then realized that you could actually monetize it? So it turns out I had a blog back, like, I don't know, like 15 years ago when I worked at this company called Webmetrics, where I wrote about uh, performance uh, monitoring and load testing and uptime. It was a blog about how to be transparent when you go down, when your site's down, how to be open about it and tell people what's going on. So that was, it was called transparent uptime. And so I had that like 15 years ago and that was just like a little side thing. But ever since then I did zero writing, zero plan to write. I had zero time to write. And that's, I think we might chat about that, but just like, it's hard to find time to write and write well when you have a day job. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. some pain. There's some pain there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so no, the answer is I've not really written much in the past and it was kind of a new thing. And I guess the way it started just to, fill that gap. When I left Airbnb, I, I was just like, okay, I'm going to do something new. What did I learn from this period I spent there so that I, one, take something out of that experience and two, not have to repeat all these same mistakes. And so I started putting that together on, in, in just like a note. And then I eventually turned it into a Medium post and put it on Medium. And that did very well, much more, better than I expected. And that kind of gave me the confidence to keep going and and led to this, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that is a good segue to my next question, which is around like, it sounds like you've used a variety of different blogging platforms in the past. Medium sounds like your own blog at some point now publishing on Logger. Substack. Logger. Yeah. And personally, I, I think I started my blogging career as a eight-year-old on Zanga, then LiveJournal, Blogspot, Tumblr, Oh man, I really hope no yeah. one discovers my life journal from back in the day. I was trying to Shut find mine. I Shut think they deleted a lot of them, unfortunately. Oh, thank God. <laughs> but from like a, a writer and a creator perspective, why did you decide to make the switch, particularly from Medium to Substack or from your own blog to Substack? Yeah, so, so I started on Medium just because that was like the best, easiest, most uh, good looking place to write. And it was kind of the default and so I started there and, and I had, I basically got some advice from a few folks, including Andrew Chen, who I just kind of started building a relationship with after I left Airbnb. And he was just like, okay, you're writing all this content that you're driving all this traffic to medium. You're not capturing and the people that are enjoying your content. So you have to kind of recapture them every time. And then you're not building any kind of direct relationship with people. And so he's just like, just like try using Substack maybe just like move all your stuff over from Medium to Substack. And so initially it was, I'm just gonna copy and paste and use it as a blog instead of Medium. And then eventually it was like, okay, let me just try like a regular newsletter and see how that goes. So I guess going back to that like original journey that I imagine the Substack founders um, wanted people to follow. And yeah, it's like, it's hard to see why anyone would use Medium anymore, to be honest. I just don't understand the upside because I think their pitches, they drive you traffic. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I didn't find that. I think, I think the only time that works is if you get featured 
and they put you in a collection. And I think that's really rare. And then you also have to put yourself behind a paywall on Medium to get any of their right. attention. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, it's like a, it's interesting how their strategy has evolved over the years. And I think there's this market that always keeps like getting filled and then seeded for like free, simple place to publish a post kind of world. Like Tiny Letter was that for a while, you know, like Blogger is that like, and it's just, it's a hard business because there's so much churn because writing is so hard. And if it's just like anyone can sign up and write anything, like the, the best writers graduate out, like they get hired at a publication or, you know, maybe they, in the case of Substack, they like go do their own publication or whatever. And so, you know, Medium has gone this route of like making it easier for you to make a little bit of money without as big of, without as much weight on your shoulders. But just then the question is like, how, how do you attract people to do that? Like, you know, I, I still think that there's like a good chance that they're, that Medium is like pretty underrated right now. Cause like, I think their subscription revenue has probably been, been growing. Like I've, hmm. I don't know. I just get the sense that like, it actually is sort of like quietly better than, than everyone gives it credit for right now, but it's still tricky right strategically and like i'm not sure like what the long term holds for it you know it'll be very interesting to learn more about that they should have done substack like they should have been substack yeah yeah and i I think they now are trying to right because they have that newsletter feature but i i still think of it as strategically confused like they don't know what they are and from dissecting their terms of service, like the writers don't actually get access to their emails, the email list of subscribers, which is very confusing. But on that note about business strategy and company strategy, just for everyone's context in the audience, like the three of us are in this newsletter collaborator, collective collective house thing, telegram group called Type House. (laughs) And we, we often talk about these different platform strategies. And I'm curious from from your perspective, Lenny, as a creator, as a writer yourself, like what do you think Substack's business strategy should be and how does it remain defensible as these creators become really large and start growing their subscription revenue to a very substantial amount? Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting topic and something I've spent time on where I did this research project on marketplaces where I basically looked into how all of the biggest marketplace businesses started and scaled. And in that, one of the interesting stories came out of Patreon that has stuck with me since, which is they initially started as a marketplace where they basically pitched to creators, we will send you patrons that you don't have to go find. Uh, and it's a great place to just like earn a living of your that you can of creators you can find yourself. And then on the demand side, it's hey, go find interesting artists and creators to patron and connect with and, and see what they're up to. And what they found is there was no actual demand for this problem. People aren't looking for people to pay every month, just you know, randomly. And so what they realized is they're not actually a marketplace as much as they want to be. They're just they're really what they're providing is an amazing SaaS tool for creators to make a living better than anything else out there. And so they cut off the entire discovery part of the roadmap and realize we're not a marketplace. We're just a great SaaS tool. Let's just be the best SaaS tool for creators out there. And that's our best shot at winning this thing. And so I I think of Substack exactly the same way. I don't think a lot of people are out there looking for newsletters. It's like once in a while, sure. But it's not like a problem we have. Oh my God, I need more newsletters. I need more emails. It's usually not that. It's usually I want less stuff and just be smarter about this stuff. So, so I think they should go the same route that, that Patreon went, which is just create a way for this to be the best place for all 
writers and maybe other types of creators to, to make money and then provide a bunch of tools and, and services like, like the thing they launched with legal services. And then there's other things like they're thinking about that they mentioned like health insurance and editors and things like that. So I think that's the right strategy. I think the question is the 10% that they take, how much does that end up being long-term and how much can they give you to make that 10% worth it long-term? That's, that's an open question. Right. Right. So you're basically uh, more strategic for Substack to like stick to being more of a platform rather than trying to be more of an aggregator. Yeah, that's my take. I feel like there's probably three ways, maybe more, but there's three paths they take the, like the Etsy approach where they bring, they bring supply and demand together and both sides problems are solved. Then there's like the Patreon Shopify model of they're just the best tool for one site to use. And you don't have to even worry about what you're using on the demand side. And then there's like, I don't know, like the TikTok approach of it's just like user generated media content and they make money off advertising. But I don't think that makes any sense because people want to pay. I, th I think they're very anti-advertising at Substack. So, Sorry, the third model would entail. Just um, like, like a media company where it's like oh, people are providing content and you go there and you pay uh, a monthly fee or something or just ads to right. consume all of this content. And it becomes more like medium. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Medium right. is kind of TikTok for text in a certain way, like in their homepage, because it's like anyone can create it and they're creating for like the general Medium reader, right? And they're hoping to get distribution from like Medium's version of the For You page, right? Yeah. That's kind of, I never thought of that comparison. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I would say, I think I agree with a lot of what you said. The biggest distinction that I would draw strategically between Patreon and Substack is that Patreon was always an incremental solution. They were always designed to be used in conjunction with something else. So the content would live on YouTube or it would be a podcast or a piece of art that you would put out on Facebook or Instagram. And then you would drive your super fans to go to your Patreon page and like pay you there just out of the goodness of their heart. And so it was always like designed to be creators had to multi-home and multi-platform in order to be able to use Patreon. That's not true of Substack and Substack owns where the content is situated and it owns monetization. So I think it's actually in a better position strategically than Patreon to become a destination platform because people aren't using it in conjunction with something else that serves for discovery. I think yeah. Like, I guess the top of the funnel for Patreon is YouTube's recommender algorithm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Whereas there is no like discovery platform for newsletters in the same way that there is like YouTube for videos um, for Patreon creators. Maybe like some people have said that Twitter is the front page of Substack because you find people who you enjoy consuming their thoughts and then you subscribe to them to get more of their thoughts. But I do think discovery is a viable direction for them to move. I don't know if it's the right one. And I agree it's not the only path for them, but I think they are in a, a more advantaged position to build discovery than Patreon was. I think that touches on this other problem that they're going to have and they're already having and that uh, Patreon tried to solve with this is what they call the graduation problem where you mm -hmm. get big enough and you just, one, don't want to pay the fees. And then two, you don't want to send your audience to all these other creators. You'd rather just like take them all. So so Patreon was like, hey, here's all these other patrons you can Patreon, and then you end up leaving the one that you're already paying, and that's not good for you. And I think Shopify has that problem where they don't want to upset their sellers by recommending other sellers. So I think, I think those are the two problems that they have to think about if they go that route. 
or like can I is why would people not leave once they're paying so much yeah uh, and then to would they be worried about their audience going somewhere else and then leaving totally it's fascinating to me how a lot of this stuff turns on like very specific things like I I totally think in the case of Shopify it's it's going to be really hard for them because there's no like surface area where they can recommend stuff that feels like it's not a threat because like their only surface area really is like stuff that should be white labeled right or is white labeled and so you can't put products from another company in my company's website right like that's that's bad but you know they kind of have this like shipment package tracking thing that's sort of unified and maybe that's some surface area but then they don't really let you like like i can't just search like backpacks and find a good backpack from somebody from some seller like you know on shopify i like have to look at a specific store that i've like used before but with i think with substack you really could imagine like a digest email or an app or something like that that's like more ongoing useful and then like once they have that and like users opt into it then like maybe they can put other stuff in there and like all of a sudden that like place that YouTube does its magic, like maybe Substack has that place. I'm not saying they should necessarily. I think even recently, like Chris, the CEO said on, did y'all listen to his interview with Peter Kafka that came out like a day or two ago on the Recode Media podcast? It was really good. But I think he basically said they're like not going to do that, which was a little surprising to me. You know, like it seems like they could, but I don't know, maybe that would, maybe that would be just too big of a conflict. Right. So like, Makes sense. Maybe they get the 10% by like the, yeah, like the, the legal fees or like advance against revenue or that other kind of stuff. Maybe it makes it easier for them to like maintain the higher cut. Yeah. Like for me, practically my health insurance is running out in like a few months. And so them solving that problem would be game changing. So yeah. I think that and an it, it seems to be the direction that they're going in as well of providing mm-hmm. additional services to help writers go independent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other question that I wanted to ask you is, I think for creators participating in the passion economy, there's there's this tension between monetization versus growth and reach. Like by putting up a paywall, by charging a subscription for something, you're naturally capping how big of an audience that it reaches. And there's always a question of like, do you give away your best content for free? Or is that something that people should have to pay for? And if you gave away your best content for free, that implies that people are paying for something that's worse. So how, how do you think about the trade-offs of even going paid as a creator? Yeah, it sounds like there's two parts to it. One is whether to go paid or not. And then two is the yeah. strategy of what is free versus paid. So I've kind of like, I feel like it's gotten pretty simple in my head of when to charge. I think you charge if you want to make a living. Your main living is kind of come from the newsletter. Well, if, and so if that's the case, you should charge. If you have another job or want, don't want to do that as your main source of income, like you're a VC or you're just like a PM somewhere and you want more job opportunities or, yeah, or basically if you were trying to drive something else that is how you're actually making money or want to make money in the future, then don't charge. So the only reason I went paid is I was just considering, here's all the routes I can go in my life right now. Start a company join a company, join a big company, advise, consult. And this always felt like the, the most interesting route if I could pull it off. And so, so the, and then COVID hit and I was like, shit, I've been, I need, a, I need some income and I don't want to get a job if I don't, if I can avoid that. So it was kind of like, okay, let's just see if I can make this work and make it my main source of income. And that's the only reason I started charging. Cause to your point, I would 
like it feels very strange after you go paid to be writing the same amount of right stuff of the same quality and now instead of thousands of people seeing it it's like a few hundred mm-hmm. and it feels it feels weird and for a while it feels bad you can call it what it is <laughs> yeah yeah so the only reason to do that is basically this is like how i'm gonna make a living now and that's totally cost. this is why ads are like I think, you know, everyone is very like down on ads right now, but it is actually very aligned. Like the goal of the writer and like the goal of the reader to like not have to pay for stuff. And like, there is, there's a lot to say for ads. It's just that there's these other side effects, especially in systems that are like very optimized that are, that are not great, but, but it does. Actually. Yeah. yeah, So I, I tried ads for that very reason before I launched paid, I just wanted to see what happened and the economics are just nowhere near the same. It was like a tiny amount of income for ads, maybe just because I didn't have as many, you know, I didn't have like a million subscribers and maybe it would work at scale, but just like the constant sales Mm -hmm. process of it. And then just the the income is just so much lower than what subscription feels like. And think about what your content would have to become if you needed to get that audience scale. It would become something totally different than probably what you really want to do. Right. That's to me the biggest thing. It's so insidious how it's like, okay, we got to have a huge TAM for this thing. So I guess it's going to be funny or like makes you outraged or talks about like whatever's in pop culture or what, you know what I mean? Like those are the only things that like have the scale to support like a good ads business kind of. That's actually, the, the other point is then you have to publish often. So with, with my newsletter, it's weekly. So an ad would be only four times a month and how much can you charge per ad? And so I'd have to make it weekly and which to your point just reduces the quality. Totally. Yeah, it's the wrong incentive. This is, this is part of the reason why Joe Rogan is such an amazing business is because he publishes all the time and, and it's long and there's like, you know, a lot of ads at the beginning and it's just like people, the daily is another great example. Like the, the kind of podcast that it's like a limited season that comes out like cereal of the New York times just bought. It's like, I mean, part of the reason why they got bought, I assume is because it's very, very hard to make that work as a standalone. It's like, okay, we're going to spend two years making 10 episodes. Like what? But it worked in the case of the original serial, you know, because it just got such an insane amount of amount of reach. And it was like this breakthrough moment in culture. But like, you can't do that every time, probably. So, yeah, it makes a lot of sense that they got acquired. Yeah, I, I've talked to other creators or, or knowledge influencers about this tension. And they have talked about this notion of like the creator life cycle, where there's basically a trade-off constantly between growth and monetization. And depending on individual priorities and individual financial situations, people are always trading off, like, do I want to grow my free audience to serve as like the top of funnel? Or do I want to monetize a smaller base? And like, how much time should I invest in free content versus paid content? And I think depending on where you are in that life cycle and what your financial situation is, people are either more or less willing to go paid or not, or to put out free content or not. Like for instance, I would never charge for my newsletter because my goal is not to not make my living off of the newsletter, even though people have asked to send me money for it, which is very kind of them. I think maybe that's a middle ground situation of like not having just a a hard paywall, but like having some sort of tipping to capture that super fan affinity and willingness to pay but not block off access to people who can't pay. Yeah, I think I think to that point, like it's easy to, similar to, it's easy to start a newsletter, but it's hard to keep up the newsletter. Similar to paid, it's easy to like go paid, 
but the amount of money you're actually going to make most of the time if you're not fully spending time on it and don't have like have another job is you're not going to make like enough to make it really worth it i think in most cases Mm -hmm. so so yeah i think that's another reason not to go paid is just like okay it's like ten thousand a year for like all of this time i'm going to put in worth it versus other things i can be doing with my time totally it's like a it's like a business in a box kind of a thing like you have to plug in there's there's a lot that's figured out and solved for you but there's a lot that you have to plug in and it's really a full-time job and once you get it past the point where it's paying your bills it's amazing really hard to get to that point though and requires full-time work like almost for sure some some people maybe are an exception but like for most people it's basically like either you want this to be your job and it's awesome because you're a business owner or like you don't and that's okay too you know (laughs) yeah but then you think about all of the instagram influencers and tiktok influencers who probably spend years of equivalent time creating content buying things that they can photograph and video traveling to places that are instagrammable and like investing that time into their content creation and potentially never reach the level of an audience where they can actually monetize and or at least monetize through advertising and so comparatively i think the model pioneered by substack of like enabling your audience to directly pay for you, it's probably one of the fastest ways for a creator to go professional. Definitely. Lenny, I'm also curious about just at a high level, how has your experience as a newsletter writer and also seeing your wife's experience as an artist and illustrator, for those of you who don't know, Lenny's wife is an amazingly talented artist. How has witnessing that journey informed your thoughts on the future of the passion economy? Yeah. Uh, Check out her book. It's called Am I Overthinking This? Available on Amazon. It's quite excellent. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's the star of our family, but very modest and behind the scenes. She, so it's one thing I'll say is it's quite shocking that we're both living this life right now of like self-employment, creating things versus either of us having a full-time job. It's not, again, where I thought anything like this would go. So yeah, so with my life, my, uh, sorry, my wife's journey was, was different in that she, she was a designer her life. She worked at Buzzfeed and Glamour and a few other places. And then she had a chronic pain injury that she had to, that she had to deal with. And she took some time off to heal. And in that time, she started just kind of using pen and paper to create uh, art, essentially these charts about life stuff that are really delightful and turned into a book. And now she's working on some other stuff along those lines. So one thing I took away from this experience and just like real talk, it's hard to follow this life without either without some financial support, basically keeping giving you that ramp time to like go mm-hmm. from zero to like, oh, wow, I'm actually like making something and then and then to I'm making enough to make a living. So I think that's the reality of a lot of the stuff. Like for me, it was just savings from like my salary at Airbnb that allowed me to take some time off to even explore this. And then with my wife, just kind of giving her the runway to explore stuff. So I think that's one main learning is like, I don't know how anyone does this without either living in a place where the cost of living is extremely low and they could just take a risk like this or somebody is just supporting them to give them this time. Because the ramp up takes a while. Like it took me a year to figure this out. This is a thing that could work. And I think that's very rare and fortunate and I'm very thankful I had that opportunity, but not a lot of people have that. Yeah. I think that ties that ties interestingly to the news that came out yesterday about TikTok giving grants to content creators on the platform mm-hmm. and basically not 
I mean, prior to that, the way that TikTok creators had monetized was by going out and finding sponsors and doing advertising deals themselves. And now TikTok has announced that it's creating a program to give grants out to content creators. And I think there's some sort of application process and probably like some company internal team that decides who actually gets these grants. But that program is also reminiscent of the Substack Fellowship Program, where they're giving writers grants to go full time and like basically supporting them on this ramp of I want to invest this time, I want to create this content, but I know there's going to be a few months of time where the income is very low. That's awesome. And Substack did something similar with a fellowship program. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. It's so interesting how it's like social media kind of started out as like, oh, everyone does it. It's just like content, it's user generated content. And then as it evolves, it's kind of like there's communication and then there's media and it's a little bit bifurcated, but sometimes they're mixed. Like some people use Substack as like just kind of a personal, like, you know, keeping up with friends or whatever kind of thing. Obviously (laughs) that's not the mainstream use case. And, And similarly, some people are basically professional at like Twitter. You know, they, they, they're on it quite a bit, myself included, probably. And uh, I mean, it's interesting because it goes back to this just like specialization and like gains from trade kind of principle in the world that I think people got confused about for a little while when social media first came out. And it's like, oh, like everyone will just do everything like for free or whatever. It's like, no, like you really need to put time in it. In order to be able to put time in it, you have to have the money to be able to do that. So how do you unblock that? It's like, we're getting a lot more sophisticated about that. And there's also like the practical pieces of, I don't know, maybe it's just the US, but like health insurance and like 401k and like, even just like structure, having structure around your day. That's like the things you lose when you are trying this life that you have to figure out for yourself. And so the more support that companies like Substack, TikTok, I guess, can provide the more, the more creators that will enable. And especially with TikTok, I imagine it's supply constrained where they, the more creators, the more success they see as a business similar to Substack. So it makes a lot of sense to create ways for people to try this in new ways. Totally. Yeah. Lenny, I want to talk a little bit about your experience from Airbnb, especially leading supply side growth. And I'm curious about whether to this discussion about the passion economy, whether you think of Airbnb hosts almost as creators themselves insofar as they're trying to earn an income from this platform and doing so by like leveraging whatever assets they have in in Airbnb's case, that's physical real estate and whether you see any commonalities uh, between succeeding as an independent media creator versus succeeding as like a host on the Airbnb platform. Wow. Such an interesting question. (laughs) I do think that, yeah, because there's like the free newsletter and then there's like the paid newsletter. Wow, there's so much depth to this comparison. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say one thing that comes to mind is just the way that they both grow is probably similar in that most of Airbnb growth, like more than 50% is word of mouth on the demand side and the supply side. People telling each other about it and they decide to use Airbnb and host. And I think with newsletters, most growth, at least for me, is almost all word of mouth. So, So the growth verticals are similar. And then, and then at Airbnb, we, you know, we sprinkle on paid growth and referrals and things like that. And I imagine newsletter authors also do that, but otherwise, huh? I guess in both cases, I'm just trying to like find things that are similar. I guess in both cases, it's delivering, delivering value to both your travelers on Airbnb and then your readers as a newsletter and people, 
I was going to say people keep coming back, but with Airbnb hosts, they don't really come back. Usually it's one time and then you're done. Mm -hmm. So it kind of just keeps you coming back to Airbnb, but not to that same host versus I think there's also a commonality in the fact that oftentimes it starts as a hobby or like a side income. And then for some people, it becomes their full-time job to be a host. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. We have these personas at Airbnb. One is the traveling host where they just travel for the weekend and they host occasionally. And then at the other end of the spectrum is the serial entrepreneur, which is a pun on the serial story that Airbnb uh, uh, yes. and, <laughs> yeah and i think that's what it's called and yeah it's uh and so they become like you know more professional yeah. So, yeah good point i like that and lenny you've been really prolific about tapping into your marketplace experience and writing a lot about that a couple of months ago you published this amazing study about marketplace retention benchmarks and like what's good retention versus what's bad retention and there was a lot of controversy slash discussion about that. So can you just summarize the findings there and sort of what the controversy was about? Is this the first marketplace retention study that got someone canceled? <laughs> there's controversy. <laughs> it was actually not that controversial. There's, I think there's one or two founders, but let me get back to that. So I guess the, what that post was, was so as a, I do angel investing and I help companies with growth and there's always this like, question of, okay, here's my retention. Is this good? Is this, is this, are we going to survive? Are we going to be able to raise money with this number? Like, okay, our retention is 20%. And there's all these anecdotal stories of, okay, 20% is perfect for this kind of business, but it's always anecdotal. And so what I decided to do is let me just ask all the smartest people that I know that, that worked on growth or invest in startups, find out what do they believe is great retention. I asked them what is bad, good, and great for, all sorts of businesses, SMBs and enterprise and SaaS bottom up and consumer apps and things like that. And so I put it all together in this post. A lot of these posts come from a very selfish desire to like actually want these answers and nobody's done this work. So I'm just going to do it. And so I put it out there and there's the controversy is just like a couple of founders are like, man, this is, these are high. Is this really what I need? This isn't, I don't believe this. Um, oh, they thought it was too high and they, they felt bad seeing yeah, those numbers. Exactly. Exactly. And I think so it did lead me to add a couple of caveats when sometimes it's okay to not have that level of retention if you're like not building a venture scale business or if your CAC is super low and it's okay to lose people or it's really early. But I think the bottom line is it's very hard to build a business that works and grows. Like most businesses fail because they don't build a thing anybody wants to pay for. So I think a lot of founders get sad that that's true, that it's very hard to build a business that works. And, and yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think our the way that we thought about this when I was at A16Z was you can build a large marketplace, but you you need to have strong retention on at least one side of the marketplace. Like it's very hard to have a successful marketplace business when both sides have very poor retention and are churning out constantly. But there's examples of successful marketplace businesses where retention on one side is low, but the retention on the other side is super sticky and there's actually expansion. Like I think of Airbnb as this, like people don't go on that many trips per year, especially nowadays, but like the host side, I, I imagine- It's growing again. Good, yes. Everyone's uh, going away for a month to like some cabin or whatever. <laughs> 
Yes. But I imagine the host side is actually really sticky and some of them professionalize and actually expand in their usage of the platform. And there's probably other marketplace examples like that too, where one side is low retention, the other side makes up for it. Yeah. I think the way I think about retention is it's just a CAC to LTV kind of formula. Like how much are you spending on all these people? How many are you keeping? Does the math work economically? And and where these benchmarks come in is just like, okay, generally, assuming you're not doing anything totally different, here's probably we're in a land and this is probably good. But yeah, to yeah. your point, it could also be a lot lower if you got something else working really well. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think CAC, CAC to LTV is the primary thing to assess the health of the marketplace. And retention is like one of those rough metrics that sort of is an indicator of what the CAC to LTV likely is, but there's exceptions, right? Like there's home buying marketplaces where people are buying homes probably once every 30 years, but because the LTV there, the transaction size is so large, you you can afford to acquire customers just once and have them use it once. Yep. Yeah. Shout out to Atmos where my wife works, where it's a home building marketplace. And yeah, it's like, High LTV purchase, someone's building a home, you know? So, but yeah, you're, once you build a home, you're probably planning on staying put for a, yeah. a long time. The other, the other thing I'll add just real quick as a part of the retention topic is the other reason retention is really important. And I've learned more and more about this through this research is just usually there's kind of some flywheel or loop that grows your business, like SEO or performance marketing or sales. And so the more people that stick around, the more people are feeding that flywheel and accelerating it. And so the, so it's another reason retention is important, which sort of feeds into LTV, but there's kind of this other important element to always think about. Yeah. Maybe the last question before I turn it over to the audience is, I know you're super active as an angel and do have, see a ton of deals, do a lot of investing. What are you focusing on these days in terms of investment thesis or specific areas of interest? All, all the things. I'm, I'm, I'm very all over the place. I, it's hard to resist just like interesting companies doing interesting things with amazing founders. Yeah. So I'm just like, you know, marketplaces, InfraTools, B2B, SaaS, and I don't know, consumer apps, all the things. I've invested generalist. All, yes. Very generalist, except I try to focus on just software as much as I can and and just from the economics of being an angel investor, I try to only invest in companies that can become really large and otherwise all over the place. Got it. So companies that are going to be successful, that's, that's a good investment yes. thesis. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, with, with awesome founders. I think I, I try to stay hard to stay close to just like people I really want to work with for, you know, five, 10 years. So yeah, those two, those two constraints, let's say. Awesome. Great. Okay. Let's go to the audience questions. I have the Q&A opened up. Ooh, I see one at the bottom that I like. Okay. Go first. What metrics do you track to determine if you have a supply side or a demand side problem? Oh man. I have a whole post that gives you this information. Yeah. It depends on the business. So I'd say at Airbnb, it depends on the type of marketplace, but basically so at Airbnb, we looked at occupancy rate which is essentially what percentage of homes in a market were booked at any one time. And we kind of learned over time that if it exceeds a certain threshold, 
there's not enough supply. And then otherwise it's not enough demand. Thumbtack had this other approach where they found that when you get less than three results in your search, less than three professionals that, that you can book, booking conversion goes way down. And so, so they focused on their goal was just like, make sure some percentage of searches have more than three results always. Mm. Yeah. So those are some examples. Okay. There's a question here that I really like. Are there any lessons that content creators can learn from SaaS? For example, do you think content creators will also start to think about LTV to CAC? And more broadly, do you think content creators will need to learn core growth fundamentals? This is asked by Tune Fearbeek. So my, like I've spent a lot of time on growth and I help a lot of companies with growth, but I've been very anti-growth for my newsletter, to be honest. I find that it's only gonna work if it just spreads on its own in most cases with like you sprinkle on some accelerants like referrals and maybe some ads here and there. But I feel like if you're growing it through other means, it's just like something is not working because the content isn't spreading. People aren't finding enough value out of it. So, so my default is just like, don't spend a lot of time on growth tactics for the newsletter, but at the same time, be smart about it. Make it like friendly for SEO. So Google can find it, encourage people to share it, you know, add little buttons to share and subscribe and things like that find other places to share, to like seed it, like Hacker News and Twitter and things like that. But I guess long-term, maybe this becomes like like any other growth thing, like, you know, start running performance marketing ads and ad referrals programs. So like for a newsletter, if I think about my LTV, so I charge 150 a year, 15 bucks a month. So my LTV is probably like $300 if I had to just like guess. And so that's like a lot I could spend on ads to make that worth it. And I've done a little bit of it, but but I'm just like weary of spending too much time on that because I'd rather spend it in writing and yeah. learning and things like that. Yeah, totally. I, I, I think you're totally right. Like it's so important in the early days not to optimize for the wrong things. And I think the most common problem that a lot of people have when they're starting newsletters is they sort of delude themselves into thinking the problem isn't the content, but the problem is like always the content. Like for, you know what I mean? Like my content is not good enough. Your content is not good. Like it is, but it's like the version, the best version of what we can do is still pretty far away from what we're currently doing. And so that's like such a, such a big, meaningful, important hill to climb. And then like optimizing, like how much am I publishing per week or what day of the week or what time, or am I submitting it to Hacker News in the right way or all that stuff is just like a distraction basically. But also like, I mean, definitely the athletic is like a science machine around this kind of stuff. Like I was listening to an uh, interview with Alex Mather, their CEO, and it's insane. Like they'll, they'll publish a post and within the first 20 minutes determine if this is the kind of post that is going to be effective at, at paid acquisition. So they have automated systems that look at the metrics and will like put money behind it on Facebook and like test out different variants and automatically put more money behind the variants that's working. And it's just like fully baked. And like they have, they have sort of the similar dynamics. Like it's a, you know, it's a, it's a content creation company, but the difference is the the person who wrote that article didn't have to think about any of that. Right. And it's a full-time job to write a good article and it's like worth just focusing on. So I think to the extent that Substack could build in some systems like that, then that's amazing. That'd be great. But like, you know, oh, that was on the 20 minute VC Alex Mathers interview, but yeah, it's yeah. yeah great. Great interview. Highly recommend it. <laughs> but that makes me think about a little bit and something I realized as I was writing, I had the sense of like, is there anything new to write about? 
how am I going to like find things that haven't already been covered? But it, I just like found there's so much not written about and there's so much not, even if it was written about, it's rarely like that good. And so if anyone's ever worried that like, man, I don't have anything left to write about. There's, there's so much opportunity. Like why hasn't anyone looked at retention benchmarks or just like how consumer apps grow? There's like all these like gaps that just continue to exist of that is worth writing about and exploring and spending time on. Totally. Agreed. Chris Dixon wrote a really great blog post about uh, bundle economics. And then I read another one. It also was hopefully good in a slightly different way, but you know, there's, there's a lot of room to do stuff. But definitely as, as I'm writing a post and wrapping it up, there's always this fear in the back of my mind. Like, is this the last good piece I'll ever write after this? Like, is my writing career over? And will I never find something as interesting to write about again? But then inevitably, I always do. But I've had this fear every time I published anything that I thought was going to be a really great piece was like, is this the peak of, of my output? I think writers often feel that. That's why it took me like a year to go paid is I needed to build that confidence that I could keep doing this. And every week there was something to cover. And so far, so good. And especially when you go pay, that's like a whole new, oh my God, I gotta, you are paying for this. I gotta find great stuff every week forever. Into perpetuity. Yeah, there's no, I don't know how you stop a newsletter. (laughs) I don't think you can. I think that's the beauty of it. I think if you want it to stop, people will still continue to pay you. Hmm, Seems, seems fishy. (laughs) I've seen some churn, but it does, it's a slow roll, but it's also like an ethical kind of like, are people not noticing it on their card or whatever? But like, I've I've definitely seen some people on Substack, like just not publish for like three months. (laughs) It's like, there's something I think that's, yeah, there's something that Substack should probably do if they haven't already like quietly built features to like, just kind of turn it off, like just pause it. It's not like we have to cancel it. Just like, we're not charging you if whatever. Anyway. Yeah. Should we check out some more questions? Yeah. I like this one. What stopped you from moving to a platform like Ghost where you pay $30 a month and keep all of the revenue? Mostly uh, laziness and <laughs> creating time to write. I'm trying to just like do as little as possible that's not writing when I focus on the writing stuff. And so, so it's always there. That's what's interesting about it. And I think Substack's going to have to deal with this over time. That's always an option. And so I'm always like, it's in the back of my mind. Why, you know, I'm paying Substack a lot every month. And so is this the month where I tried out? So, so it's there. I just haven't, it's basically momentum. Like things are fine. I could probably switch anytime. So let me just keep going and then maybe try it in the future. But I'm, I'm really like, I really support Substack and I really want to stay with them. And so even if the economics aren't great right now, I'm hopeful that it becomes really clear and obvious and there's no reason to ever think about switching to ghosts. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Tarek asks, can you give an example of where tipping has practically worked outside of Twitch slash adult content? And this question was directed at me, actually. Okay, but I'd okay. love to hear your guys' th- guys' thoughts on this too. I think of tipping as, I mean, tipping. There's a lot of places where it has worked well, but I think of it primarily as being very conducive to live platforms where things are happening in real time and unfolding in front of the viewer. And that's because tipping innately is this very additive behavior where you're paying for something even though you don't have to. It's like literally gratuitous to pay because 
the content will still exist even if you don't pay. And so it benefits from a live interaction where the content creator is able to sort of give recognition and shout out whoever tipped and you can get that kind of feedback in real time and feel like the status and recognition that comes from being really generous like tipping is an act of generosity and people typically want to be recognized for their generosity and so where i've seen tipping work really well is is on these live platforms that you mentioned there's a lot of live streaming platforms in china that are either video based or live audio streaming platforms where tipping also works really well mm. um, but they all involve some sort of like in the moment recognition of like wow this person is so generous and they're sort of able to show off and accrue status in front of an audience of people oh man zoom needs tipping like for colleagues you know you just have like a virtual currency in your workplace and you know it's like hey that thanks for helping me out on that project yeah i i think that's that's so interesting like i i would love to accept tips during the stream but it's not built in i think it is a little bit cheapening though yeah, there's probably certain categories of content where you don't even, even if people would be willing to tip, you don't want to accept it because it feels a little bit like busking or begging. Right. right. I think someone, I forget who, but some smart VC had this point that the problem with tipping, micro tipping is getting from like zero to a penny is, is a lot of friction and work and like mental decision-making. And so if all you're getting is like a dollar or 50 cents, it's very hard to make that add up versus like may as well charge, you know, $10 because they've already gotten over that threshold of paying you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a lot of times with micro, micro, whatever it's called, I guess it's tipping uh, doesn't work in most places. Right. That, that's why I think it works well when there's a combination of different monetization methods on that platform such that, like the platform already has your payment credentials. And so it's more frictionless to just like decide, oh, I'm feeling generous. I want to give a dollar. Right. Totally. I think we have time for like maybe one or two more questions. There's two that are very related to me that I'm interested in. One is from Alan G. Do you see yourself branching off into additional types of content or monetization strategies? And then related to that is any experience with like one-to-one coffee chat-esque platforms which is maybe another, like, what is it? Super PR? There's like companies like this bring Cameo. Up like Cameo. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like more one-to-one type stuff. So we can lump those two together potentially. I'm going to be, I'm going to be big on Cameo. Just kidding. <laughs> my, so my, my current strategy is to do as little as like simplify and focus. And so I'm trying very hard not to do anything else. No podcast, no Zoom stuff, no one-on-one stuff. I'm trying to just like put all my energy into, let me just make this newsletter great. Because I think it, it can, it, like, if it makes a living for me, I don't really need, I don't want to do more if I don't have to. But it's always out there. It's always this, yeah. Like, if I wanted to optimize, I think it'd be really smart to do a podcast and a book and one-on-one meetings and all those things. But I'm, I'm just trying to stay focused and simplify my life as much as I can for now. And so then on the that. one-to-one coffee chat stuff. So the reason I started the newsletter, like part of it came from, I was starting with advising initially and I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to advise all these companies and it's going to be amazing. And, you know, get some equity and then maybe make a living doing it. But then I was like, what if I just scale this advising into a newsletter and provide it to the, to many more people for the same amount of work. And then it becomes recurring revenue. So, Mm -hmm. so I'm trying to avoid that also for now, 
but there's a world where maybe there's like a higher tier of the newsletter and then you get uh, an hour or something, you know, occasionally. So I'm thinking about that a little bit, but I'm also trying to reduce the things I'm doing as much as I can to make the newsletter as great as possible. Let's end it with this very open-ended question, which I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on. But Anonymous asked, what do you think about the subscription offering being planned at Twitter? Is it going to replace Substack? So I haven't actually, I don't think there's that much information out there about what this actually is. I think it all came out of like one job posting and then everyone has been sort of like taking that job posting and forecasting what this could possibly be. I just think Twitter is one of those platforms that has dramatically under monetized relative to the amount of value that they put out into the world. Like there's, I mean, Ben Thompson has written a lot about platforms versus aggregators and how platforms are those that like cross the Bill Gates line of like giving more um, value to external parties than accruing to itself. And he oftentimes talks about how Apple is like, or, I think other platforms like Facebook or Instagram, et cetera, like are not platforms by this definition because they capture more value than they give to the content creators. I think Twitter is like the opposite where they've created so much value for the world and captured very little of it. And like, there's so many posts on a weekly basis that I see on Twitter, which is like, I can't believe the site is free or whatever. So I think having new monetization models on Twitter is something that I'm really excited to see. I think there's a ton of content that people would be willing to pay for and potentially it combats like a lot of the low quality misinformation, trolley behavior on Twitter too. Uh, I would pay for Twitter. That'll be my answer. Would you pay for like a specific person's tweets? Like if they, if it was like a, if it was Substack, but just, you know, on Twitter and in tweet form, but you had to pay. Hmm. Depends on Would people much. pay for subscription tweet storms? <laughs> yeah. Is that, is that just uh, honestly, I think people would. Because I think it combines the best of like private communities, which are starting to become more of a thing. Courses, maybe to some extent. You could deliver just links to stuff, right? Like through your Twitter and, and newsletters, but like shorter form and like more frequent, like, oh, like live tweeting with certain events or whatever. There's a lot of, I think, really great stuff that people could do behind the paywall. And because the top of the funnel like is already on Twitter, it'd just be so efficient if people already had their payment information saved. I worry a little bit about like how well Twitter is going to be able to actually execute this quickly though. I could imagine a version of it that just sort of like, they just push it out and it's kind of simple and it's kind of chaotic and there's some stuff that's broken, but like they basically figured over time and it would like do really well. Normally we've seen Twitter take forever to launch things though. (laughs) So... I don't know. Maybe they have to. There's a lot of stuff I obviously don't understand about running a public company, but it would be nice if they're just like, you could do this in like three months, you know? Like, why not? Just give it a shot. That's how I feel about it. I think you should apply for this job. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, guys, we are at the hour. We are very disciplined about staying on time to be respectful of all of our attendees' time and our guest time. So, Let's give it up for Lenny. Thank you so much, Lenny, for being here today. Stay tuned for next week's episode guest to be announced. It was really nice having all of you guys here. Thanks so much for all of the really thoughtful questions. Thanks so much, guys, and have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye, everything fans.